Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Shruti Rao, co-founder and chief business officer of Vendia, a multi-cloud distributed data platform. Previously, Shruti launched Amazon's managed blockchain business and led business development for various AWS services. Shruti has also held a variety of leadership roles in corporate development at companies like the Bank of America, AT&T, DirecTV, and startup Feedseye. Shruti began her career at McKinsey and holds an MBA and computer science degree. In this episode, you'll learn about how Shruti's childhood love for adventure led her from her hometown of Mysore, India to California, the invaluable lesson her father taught her at a young age, which helped shape who she is today, and advice for Asian Americans to thrive in their life and career. Hope you enjoy this episode and let's get started. Hey, Shruti, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin, for having me. Excited to have you here. And again, before we hop into the conversation, want to wish you a happy new year. And uh, the start off question is, are you the type of person who makes New Year's resolutions? And if so, are you willing to share any of those resolutions or goals? Well, I'm the type of person who makes uh, New Year's resolution all through the years. So I, do, yeah. I don't wait for... For, for the new year, but um, I have recommitted myself this this um, year to do um, one new recipe a week. Uh, wow, I, good I, one. Yeah, especially through the pandemic, um, we're either, you know, cooking at home most of the times or eating out sometimes, and you end up going to the same places and you get bored. Uh, you have your, you know, preset menu of this is what I eat at this particular restaurant. So what we've done is uh, my my youngest, my eight-year-old and I, we've said for 52 weeks, we're going to make 52 recipes. Um, that are We've chosen 26 recipes from different states in India and then 26 recipes from uh, other, other parts of the world. You know, wow. we have Brazilian, yeah. all vegetarian. So um so far, it's going good, and I hope we keep it up. That's and- a great. That's a great resolution, and it's one you can do with your family too, right? So you yeah. have an accountability buddy right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And get get the kids to eat different types of things and appreciate the culture too. Any highlights from the first uh, two to three weeks of 2023 of a favorite recipe so far or a hit? Oh, uh, you know, there are so many really good recipes out there. Uh, and these don't take a whole lot of time. And then uh, one thing, though, is because my eight-year-old is involved, it always ends up being less spicy. But we've had yeah. a lot of fun. Uh, it's easier than you think. Cooking is easier than you think. Uh, especially because we tried a couple of a couple of recipes that are uh, not Indian, which I predominantly make Indian food, vegetarian mm-hmm. Indian food. So, and I had most of the ingredients, or I could substitute for something that was meaningful. It's it's really easier than you think. It's the first step. That's fun, and I do feel like after a while, right, of eating out, where's the challenge in that? It's it's kind of. <laughs> 
I, I feel like, especially with kids, like having that experience of appreciating, again, it's not going to necessarily be farm to table, right? I'm still buying my stuff from the supermarket, but the appreciation of the process and all the raw ingredients that go into a meal, I feel like is a great experience to share with the, yeah. the kids too. So. Exactly, right? And at eight years old, they want to they wanna do this with you and it's a uh, free labor. Hey, take it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Win-win. <laughs> A good one. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to our conversation. I was thinking we could start kind of with Shruti's origin story. So if you don't mind, could you share a little bit more about your early childhood, where you were born, your upbringing, and some early memories of that? Oh, yes. Uh, I was born in this little town called Mysore um, in the southern part of India. If anyone has eaten uh, Mysore Masala Dosa, that's where I'm from, except folks, I hate to break this to you. There's no such thing as Mysore Masala Dosa in southern part of India. It's just Masala Dosa. And then they rebranded it, whoever they is, with the name. Hey, it works. Um, also birthplace of uh, three big yoga centers um, in India. So uh, I had a, I had an amazing childhood. My, my father was, um, he's retired now, but he was a scientist as Indian Space Research Organization, also consulted for NASA and was, uh, he taught physics at the university. And my mom was uh, the director of uh, technology IT for um, the sericulture research um, for the federal government in India. So both very well educated. So education was very important for them that their kids mm. well educated, 4.0 GPA. Yes, all the stereotypes you can think of as, as a typical Indian Asian family that applied to me. So that was that was true. And I had to get the 4.0 and also be really good at all the other things that I did, like theater or debate or, you know, a dance, you know, things like that. But I really thrived there. Every time they raised the bar for me, I felt that I had to catch up and keep up and show them because I wanted them to be proud of me. That was that was the kind mm -hmm. of kid I was that uh, yeah. it was if they said jump, I would be like, how high? Um, I was also a very mischievous kid and there was a lot of trouble. So it was not easy. <laughs> my parents uh, routinely called me the devil. So, uh, <laughs> and then they tell me my youngest is easier than me. So there's some truth to that. So I, I had a wonderful childhood, uh, in a, I'm so glad to have been born in an era without social media. I'll tell you that. So. 100%, 100%, right? With two young kids too, I'm like, I am not looking forward to the day when they ask me to have a smartphone and then that's a whole nother uh, challenge. So yeah. it is good good to look back at our childhood and feel like it was quaint, right? And we can call those the uh, good old days. <laughs> it, was, it was the good old days. So even with the, the subjects that you're mentioning, like, right? Like dance or theater and like these hobbies, did you feel like you chose those and you were naturally interested in them, but yeah. your parents kind of, uh, kind of uh, set this bar of like, well, if you're going to do this, we want you to kind of put your all into it and do your best. Or did they actually help help select what uh, hobbies you ended up getting into outside of your academics? Yeah, some of the some of the hobbies they helped introduce me to, and some of them I picked up myself. Um, the rule in the house was. Hey, you gotta try it. If you sign up to something, you gotta try it in earnest for three mm. to four months. And yeah, you've got to yeah, put yeah. in your 100 percent You've got to show up, you've got to suit up, you've gotta practice, 
and then you got to try it out. And then for whatever reason, it is not working for you. Maybe you're terrible at it. It's possible. Uh, maybe you don't enjoy it. Maybe you just don't like other folks that you're hanging out there. Whatever the reason is, you, ha you had that and on cord that you could pull and say, I'm out. And they were fine with that. Yeah. I tried so many things. Some of them I was very good at. I was very good at acting. I was good at uh, dancing. I was mediocre at a few things. I went to a doll making class. My dolls did not look very pretty. Um, <laughs> I, 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 they look pretty now, but they didn't look pretty then. Uh, I tried some athletics. I was really good swimmer. Some things I was just terrible at. Uh, singing. I was terrible at singing. Uh, it, it's uh, it's irony because my name Shruti means sound of music, like the movie. <laughs> so, uh, but you know that gave me this uh, this this conversation that I get to have with people at cocktail parties is varied because I can talk all the way from karate to fencing to classical music to theater and everything in between because I've had a little bit of taste of it. It's like a buffet. So yeah. that, that's that's what I really liked about how I was. That's raised. great. And then now this is more parenting advice that I'm looking for with your kids as they've kind of grown older. How have you either mimicked or uh, differed from how you were raised and, and how your parents kind of uh, guided the, the kids into what they wanted to do? You know, I feel like there are so many avenues to try things out these days that we didn't even know existed i mean there was there was a there's a bad part of social media but there is also a good part of the internet in which you can can say hey in the in the world of doing things what all could a six seven eight year old do um so we've tried a bunch of different activities we've watched it on youtube and said is this something that you're willing to do hey do you like roller derbying you know that wasn't available in mysore when i was growing yeah. up in the small town um, or you are, okay, let's go just try out one class and see if this is something that's interesting. Um, my son said he really wants to do fencing. So we did fencing for about eight months before, after which he said, okay, I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fine. As long as you're willing to commit to a few months and do it with integrity and honesty, then you will mm -hmm. have enough exposure and stories to talk about. So that's how I've done. I've used some of the things that my parents did with me um with some tech which which has helped me a lot yeah yeah that's great so yeah just casting a wide net letting the kids explore find their own interests but also not also making sure that they have an out right and it's not a forever right. commitment right right exactly um, great and then what else sparked your curiosity when you were younger and like again this is us foreshadowing what happens next in your life, but were there one or two topics or um, things that you did as a kid where you're like, oh, I really like this, right? And you can see like where you're at today that that, that were actually some of the early signs of what you might end up doing in your future. Yeah, yes. In fact, I was talking to my parents about this over the holidays very fondly. Um, couple of things that I really liked to do when I was, uh, you know, seven, eight years old, second grade, third grade-ish, was one is have a lot of adventures. 
And mm -hmm. two was cook up these grand stories in my head and then convince everyone of these grand stories and get them to partake in my adventure. Um, God, this was 80s. And there was a local bandit who was uh, who hid in the woods. Um, he had this really big mustache. Uh, he would poach elephant tusks. His name was Virapan. He's dead at this point. Uh, he was like painted in this very grand over the top news stories about him about how he is you know killing these elephants and poaching the tusks and selling them it's uh, and it was open for everyone you know kids you know elderly everyone to see so i think i took a lot of that in of i'm going to be the one who goes and catches this bandit uh sec sec second grader that's what i decided and I came up with an elaborate plan of how if we went to our school and there was a bridge, under that there was a manhole. If we went through the manhole, we would somehow go to that forest on the other end of the manhole and we could go there and catch this bandit. So I had convinced a class of God, I had a big class, maybe 50, 60 kids, to partake in this plan with me and they all had their homework assignments of one needs to bring rope the other needs to bring you know sticks you know and we were all ready <laughs> i had created my own militia in the second grade you know wow. with a complete plan and map and everything and convinced all of them to go with me so it's uh, it's thinking about that over the holidays with my parents I got to realize it's not a whole lot different from running a company. First, it sounds ludicrous. And then it starts to think, are they really that crazy? Or is there some truth to that? Is, does that manhole lead to that forest? And could we possibly do this? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that second grade plan was pretty outlandish. But I think that's what has helped me, that sense of adventure, of being OK with the manhole not leading anywhere. And also being able to convince a bunch of people to see yeah. the plan I worked up in my head. So it, it was it was serendipity, you know, that that we, we all started talking about this and this came up and there was a little bit of an aha moment this past right. days. And that's storytelling too, right? And telling that story and building a coalition, <laughs> you know, obviously today it's employees, investors, right. and, but it seems like it's so funny, right? Because I feel like with children and now as a parent i see it on the flip side mm -hmm. this is what i'm always searching for what is that each kid's natural gift the thing that they do without really trying too much which they naturally um excel at that could be potential foreshadows of what they might end up doing in the future so it's great that you have that story in your back pocket it's fascinating isn't it yeah yeah and then um kind of switching gears to your parents, you kind of talked about what your parents did um, for their work, but were there one or two traits of from each of your mom and dad that you really admire and something that you think about even today as you're running your business? Yeah, yeah, I, I, they're, they have a lot of good traits, but I'll tell you, my mom, while she had a day job at the federal government, she was the kind of person who could sit still for more than a few minutes. Uh, she's, they're turning 70 this year. 
And they are still like that, especially my mom is still like that. It's, she's always a go, go, go person. So she had started a farm where she grew mangoes. She had started, wow. she built a shopping mall. She had, she had, uh, you know, started some other businesses on the side. She was doing so many things while she was still cooking at home for us, you know, taking care of the in-laws and working. And again, this traditional Indian woman, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So she always did that. And she always found time to socialize, to throw amazing parties, uh, have a bunch of really good friends, uh, go go to the salon and look great. It's it's the and she always said, if you want something done, you give it to the busy person. So every time I feel overwhelmed, I really do think of her of how she did it with far fewer resources than I did, and a devil like kid that I was, and my brother was. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, with, with in laws around, it, they, it, that was a lot for, for one woman to deal with. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of that. So the tenacity and the uh, unstoppable. I'm just going to go and do it. I'm this train. It's not going to stop personality yeah. that she has. I think that's, that's mm. that was a fantastic thing about her. Um, and my dad was always this, you know, I always, if you, if you translate your parents into animated cartoons, my dad is this old wise owl. He's that wise owl who sits on a branch and then like dispenses this wisdom kind of thing. Though I, I, what I've taken from my dad is not what he has done for me, what he has not done for me. Uh, when I was in my undergrad in computer science, um, well, you know my priorities, I wanted to go work for Oracle in Bangalore because they had a really nice gym. <laughs> That's, that was the number one reason I wanted to go work there. It was in a very cool location. It was by the, by all the cool places, and they had a really nice gym. So I went to my dad and said, "Hey, I know you have when you he taught you uh, physics at the university, so he had a lot of these students who had you know graduated many many years ago." Said, "Hey, can you introduce me to some of your old older students so they can refer me in?" I didn't ask for a job, right? I didn't say, "Hey, dad, tell them to give me a job." No, just introduce me. He's like, "No, no, 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 I can't ask for such favors. You got to go do it yourself." I was so livid and upset with him for so many years. And uh, I have realized that I got my first few jobs out of sheer spite to just show him that I could do this without him. And I thanked him, you know, maybe four or five years ago that thank you, dad, for not giving me that rope mm -hmm. when I mm -hmm. thought I needed it. I didn't need it. So the thing I really like about my dad is all the things he hasn't done it for me or hasn't mm. enabled me. He always told me that you create your own safety net. Don't don't look mm. at me to create your safety net because that's an addiction. So that's what I really like about both of them. Uh, in the moment, though, it was a lot to deal with. But I look back as a as a parent of older kids myself and think, wow, that was that was helpful. Wow, yeah. Great, great examples, right? The boundless energy of your mom getting stuff done, right? I think also as parents to young kids, I'm like, how did my mom 
do that like with much less help and resources than what I might have today. And then to your dad, like having the discipline and foresight and wisdom like that old wise owl to say, I could help you, yeah, but I'm choosing not to because the lessons and value you'll get out of this today is gonna last you much longer than getting a quick job at Oracle, right? So. <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard, right? I mean, yeah. you your kids and you just want them to be happy. For sure. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, their heart's going to be broken, which mine was for a decade. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it, it, I think it takes a lot of yeah. gumption to be able to do that. So I'm, I'm very And like, who, who knows what, how your course would have changed and your tenacity and resilience and motivation and drive and self sufficiency would have changed if dad had said, here, Meet three people I know at Oracle and good luck, right? Because right. you definitely took some lessons out of that. Right, so. exactly, exactly. Great, great examples. And then you kind of touched on how you decided to study computer science in undergrad. Was that a natural kind of um, uh, subject that you wanted to just dive deeper into? Or how did you fall into um, deciding to study comp sci? Yeah, <laughs> I actually did not want to study comps. I, I wanted to do an MBA. Uh, oh. Yeah, so so what happened was, you know, you were asking me about uh, the about the childhood. One of the other things is when folks asked me, you know, we were playing on the streets in the 80s uh, in India, and people say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, Mysore did not have an airport. We do have one now. There was no airport back then. So you would see maybe like two or three planes fly above us in a year. And everybody would come out of their house, wave at the plane, myself included. Mm. It was it was an event. It was a grand event. Um, so most kids said, I want to be a pilot. That that was the de facto answer for if you asked a kid my age in Mysore in the 80s. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Pilot. That was the answer. The second answer was something like a police officer or an army officer because there were a lot of army movies or they would say something like a train driver that was the that, that was like a uh acceptable answer because there was a train uh line um i always said i want to be the owner of tata company uh yeah i was the i was the second third grader i want to be the owner of tata company no idea how to what a ceo is or you know um, anything like that. And so I said, I want to be the owner of Tata company. And then uh, this one time, this this one woman who was asking us and she kept appreciating everyone when they said what they wanted to be, you know, pilot or whatever. And my turn, I said, I want to be the owner of Tata company. She said, ah, no, you're going to grow up and um, get married and work at a bank. I was like, uh, no, I won't. Uh, and then I was really upset. So I told my dad about this, that this, this particular woman told me that I can't be the owner of Tata company and I'll grow up and get married and work at a bank. And he said, listen, other people will tell you the most that they can dream of. And this woman can't dream mm -hmm. that big. That's mm -hmm. not in the realm of the possibility for her. It is in the realm of the possibility for you. And the way you do it is you go to America and you get your MBA. And then you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, this is like seven-year-old, eight-year-old me. Wow. Thinking, I'm going to go to, I don't know what an MBA is, right? No idea. I'm going to go to America. I'm going to do my MBA. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's what I'm doing. 
which led me to study French in high school. Mm. Why did I study French when I wanted to go to America? No idea. I thought, you know, half the people also spoke French, but oh well. Uh, some foreign language, I guess, that I thought people would appreciate that I made an effort to learn another foreign language. Um, and uh, uh, computer science was, I, uh, when I graduated high school, my parents were like, look, you have really good GPA. I know you want to do an MBA. Don't go do a business degree. Do a computer science or do an engineering degree. They wanted me to do electronics um, and electrical engineering. I was like, hell no, that's not happening. That's just too much work. So computer science. So it, it's you have the technology foundation and go do an MBA and do some law courses. And then this is what my dad said. You will be a triple threat. It's uh, I, I call it the holy grail of uh, Asian parents <laughs> wish list for their kids if they're not doctors. Those three said, yeah. that's great. So that's how I ended up in computer science. It was not what I wanted to do. I was always, I was good at it and I liked it, but I thought of that as a means to an end. I really came to appreciate it, hence my career in in this, in tech. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was okay. my wow. way. But it was still very, it was very strategic, right? Which is right. like, I want to get to X and this is the best path for me to get there. Right. So very intentional from the get-go of where you wanted to end up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So then you did you it. did your undergrad in Mysore, and then mm -hmm. right after you went to the U.S. to do your MBA, or what was the sequence of events? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did my undergrad in Mysore. I did. Uh, I did. Uh, I did some time with uh, McKinsey after the fact. Uh, Tesco Supermarkets was my client through McKinsey and worked in uh, both UK and, um, and the US to open the fresh and easy format of stores that, that okay. was open yeah. in, the, in, in LA area for, for a minute. And then after that is when I left and um, applied to a few business schools and, you know, Pepperdine ended up giving me a full ride. So I said, this is it. There you go. This is where I'm going to go. Um, did did the MBA there. Um, also did most of the classes for JD. Didn't pa didn't didn't do my bar exam because we didn't want to. I wasn't looking to become a lawyer. I just wanted to do all the courses while I had the the scholarship <laughs> uh, included in. So I did the JD MBA uh, part in 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 about two years there. So. That's that's how I ended up. Wow. Well, and, even getting to McKinsey, that must have been a huge accomplishment, a feeling of sense of accomplishment at the time, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, McKinsey was a very interesting uh, experience because the I I started off after undergrad with a hey, I I know I want to go to business school. I don't really need to go and, you know, do a couple of years of, you know, real world experience because I think I know enough to, I go to McKinsey and go, God, I don't know anything. Um, and then McKinsey was, I think, was training me for the real world. And mm -hmm. with, with, with uh, it's, it's initiation by hazing almost. It was the, it was the Marine Corps. It was a really good precursor to going to, um, both the MA side and also the the uh, AWS 
work that I did later mm-hmm. on. So both of them helped me quite a bit. It was, and there is there is a common pattern I think in my whole life of uh, continuously like someone else or myself raises the bar, and I automatically assume that new bar is always the has been the bar, and then go try to achieve mm-hmm. it. Um, which is great. I, I've also been burned out uh, by it at times, but I think uh, that's that has been the common theme throughout when I was growing up and also in my mm. professional life. So, so on that point, and it's kind of like a little bit of diversion, but it's been topical for me and like within my household, which is this art of fulfillment and science of achievement, right? Mm-hmm. And after you're able to achieve whatever goals it may be and continue to set the bar higher. I feel like there's this other tension that is also underlying some of that motivation, which is dissatisfaction, right? Because mm-hmm. when you hit the new bar, okay, what what's the next bar I can jump over? Would love to just get your thoughts on, you know, number one, has that been something that you've been working through as well? And number two, have you found any practices or things that have been helpful for you to just enjoy the moment, but also, you know, it might be within your DNA just to be like, okay, what's next? I need to do something bigger and better. Yeah, gosh, that's like a lifelong thing. It's I didn't know that was a thing until maybe recently, five, six years ago, is uh, it's really addiction. It's addiction mm-hmm. to getting to that next new bar for yourself, for uh, all of that motivation comes from this inner, for me at least, from this inner voice that says, I'll show you. I'll show you what I can mm-hmm. do. I'll show you I can be better. I'll show you. So it's seeking external validation. Sometimes when you start off as a kid, it's, it's for some parents, it's desirable. Oh, yeah, my kid is doing all these things because they want my approval um, yeah, and yeah. appreciation. Sure, it seems like a win at that point, but they are going to constantly be doing that. I was constantly doing that. Um, what has helped me is disentangle my pro- multiple lives that I have. Uh, I am a Venn diagram of a bunch of things. I'm not one thing. I'm not just my startup. I'm not just a mom. I'm also a mom. I'm also a founder. Uh, I'm also a wife. I'm also a friend. There are a lot of parts of me and all of these things need equal attention. Some things need more attention at some point, something else needs to be balanced out, but Mm. this, uh, life needs to be in this balance where whatever the balance means for you, your balance and my balance are different things. So disentangling these things helps. So your identity is not, my identity is not founder. My mm-hmm. identity is a lot of different things combined. And one is not more important than the other. Uh, that is what's helped me take, take into stock, where am I today? Or where am I this season, in, in, in this season of my life? And how can I make sure that I am happy in multiple facets of my life, not just one? Because it's yeah. so easy in our culture to just focus on work. Or the other extreme is, oh, forget work. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit, quit, or check out and then focus on whatever it is. Uh, you can't do that. You can, sure, of course you can, but you're not gonna be fulfilled or satisfied. Yeah, great advice. I think 
this topic that you mentioned around identity, it, sh it shape, shifts and changes a lot too, right? As we change as human beings and different life events, having kids, uh, different jobs and having different things become important to you. So I, I do agree. It is really a journey, right? It's a process that probably isn't going to end because there's always going to be things in our identity and our life that change as well. So yeah, great advice on on how to stay balanced, right? And right. not put too many eggs in one basket, so to speak. So absolutely. Yeah. So I guess after you do the MBA, you kind of achieve the immediate plan that you and your dad had talked about when you're seven to say, do the MBA, go to America, check, check. And then what was next for you? And how did that kind of line up with what you were planning to do post B school? Yeah, you know, the 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 deal was, hey, you go to America, do your MBA, and you can be whatever you want to be. Except I didn't yeah. know whatever you wanted to be was what. <laughs> um, the the finding the bandit thing, the adventure was helpful in that I tried a lot of different things. I tried investment banking for a hot second. I that was not my thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did M and A and Corp Dev. So did the uh, AT Singular and Direct TV merger. Did the Bank America Countrywide, um, Merrill Lynch uh, merger. Um, uh, I post merger there. Spent some time there. I absolutely loved it. I wanted to do things on the revenue side. Um, so I went to a startup. Was there for a year. Did strategic alliances and then went to AWS and ran go-to-markets for both serverless business and started and ran the blockchain business there. That's where I met my co-founder, Dr. Tim Wagner, mm. who, who created uh, serverless, who's father of serverless. So uh, all of that was uh, trying to figure out what is it that I want to do. Uh, and I'll tell you, I still don't know what is it that I want to do. Uh, all of this is a part of doing the things that I like doing until they are not the things that I like doing and then doing something else. Um, mm. I What I realized is I like building and I like uh, solving problems and I like adventures and I like storytelling. Mm. So those are the four things that I've realized that doesn't um, take effort from me and I also enjoy and the world moves. Mm. It's the, what is that ikigai of all mm -hmm. the different Venn diagrams coming together. Um, those are the things for me that that are my secret sauce of what makes Shruti tick. Um, and I'm doing all of that in my current role. I did all of that at AWS. Um, and, and that's been my journey so far. It's uh, It's trying to go in the manhole and figuring it out. Yeah, find the bandit, so to speak. Find the bandit. <laughs> but it seems like you found this sweet spot. And I think this is a part of everybody's career journey of like figuring out what energizes you, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to have to put in the hours and the work. But if you can find something that I think is overall net energy giving, then depleting. And again, that's very subjective, but um, I feel like that's how you know you're kind of in the right space. So it seems like you found that. Right. Exactly. Um, I, I, I guess another follow-up question is more about how do you know when it's time to make that jump, right? And leaving a company and really having that 
conviction or confidence or just belief like, hey, I'm going to cross a chasm and let's see where it goes, right? Because I'm sure some of your um, decisions to leave weren't necessarily easy, right? There are a lot of factors that might keep one person at a company. Um, but have there been any kind of compasses that you've used to help you make that decision of like, hey, AWS is a great place. You got to start the blockchain business on AWS too. The business was doing really well, but there's still something else out there that you felt you just kind of needed to do. So I would love to hear more about your your advice here. Yeah, you know, I think we've all felt it. Uh, some of us choose to ignore it. I have ignored it certain times and mm. it doesn't work out well for me. Uh, I also am very impatient. So it, I, I, that's why I, I act on it very quickly. You know, have you ever been in the situation where you, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whatever in the morning, and then you have a bunch of work that, that is on your to-do list, but then you're like, oh man, I don't want to do this. You're thinking of all the other things. You're thinking of these productivity hacking and habit tracking and God knows all these new cool things to do that would get you to do it, but you're not doing the things that would actually take five minutes to do. Um, and it's not just one day. It happens over and over again, and you start seeing the pattern of, I'm not into this anymore. I'm, you know, it's the feeling of falling out of love. It's not yeah. logical, it doesn't make any sense, but it happens. And then you just feel this empty blah feeling. And mm. that's when you start asking, what is your, what are your axes that make you happy? What is your four or five things that, that make you, you know, Justin or make me Shruti? Um, which one is your, your job or whatever your task at hand is failing? Am I not storytelling enough for me in particular? Is there no adventure in this? Am I not building? Am I keeping the lights on? Am I just program managing? Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the death knell for anything I do. Uh, you know. So what is it? So as long as you start with your compass and say, which of my professional buckets is it not filling, then it's easy to understand. And then you can do something about it. Hey. Can I pivot my role in a way that it does fulfill me? Uh, sure, that that has happened. I mean, that's happened to me in multiple jobs that I've held. Sometimes it's, uh, I know you got to go do something else. Because at some point, that's your high. You're you're going mm -hmm. down the slope, you know, the, the slope of disillusionment or whatever the slope it is for you. You're just going down that slope and it's not going to be good for anybody involved in that situation and is there an amount of time that for you typically it's like okay if i feel like that for three months i know it's time to take action versus you know everyone all, obviously will have a rough day or a rough week but um how does consistency of that feeling kind of play into whether or not you think there's something to act on versus not yeah uh, uh when I start feeling some uh, the blah, I will definitely try to change my situation and see what else I can do. What else yeah. I can do to fill my cup? It's not that the three months is too long for me. It's, it's a it's a couple of weeks that yeah. I try to pivot and continuously make things. Even a day of sulking is too much for me to deal with. So I <laughs> I, I pivot more quickly than that. But at some point, you realize your work here is done. 
Yeah. Um, at AWS, what I realized that I really wanted to build. Mm. I wanted to build something that would solve a real problem. And Tim and I had started talking, so I, I cheated a little bit. So there was an overlap. So where Tim and I had started talking about Vendia and um, I had already started feeling uh, like I'm not building at AWS. So that kind of made it, uh, oh yeah, of course I would go build this because I'm not building anything here. It was a very easy choice for me. I also left at the height of the pandemic in you know, um, end of March, early April of 2020 before we got a term sheet. So um, I think it was scary for my family, not me. And I was just like, I'm out. <laughs> but I, I think it was for my parents, especially in my extended family. My husband didn't, was fine, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, get, I want to hear your perspective too about, you know, when you have a family that, you know, relies on your stability, your stress levels financially as well. How do you factor that into your decision? And at some point too, the money matters too, right? With some of these decisions. So curious to know if that, that decision criteria, more so than the adventure and like building has ever tilted you the other way to make a more conservative decision as opposed to, um, you know, taking a potentially higher risk uh, decision. Yeah, you know, it's enormous amounts of privilege. That's mm. the answer to this. It's uh, if you're listening to this and going, hey, I don't have six, eight months of emergency savings. And, you know, I don't have a spouse who makes good money and you know, my fixed costs are low, then uh, this will sound very entitled. It's really the reason I was able to make that decision is, yes, the sense of adventure. I was bored out of my mind. I needed to go do this. I was really pulled into it. My co-founder had left his job 10 months prior and was working on this without pay. Mm -hmm. So all of that is true. But if I, I had, the, I've been lucky enough to be in situations where I went into companies where the stock was low and I left when it was high. It was right place at the right time. It was, I mined Bitcoin uh, and sold it at a good price. My, yeah. I, live, I live outside of Sacramento now. So my fixed costs are very low compared to if I you know, lived in the Bay Area. Um, I bought my house when it was <laughs> down market. So all of that afforded me that luxury yeah. right so i can't just sit here and tell you oh yeah <laughs> you don't have an emergency fund you should you should just yeah go uh, it would be very uh callous of me to say that so we should acknowledge privilege when we do have it um yeah yeah and i guess i guess i guess to that point too obviously where the market is and just the overall sentiment is much different today than um when you started Vendia uh, almost three years ago, how have you seen the company have to adapt to where things, where reality is today economically versus even a year ago? Yeah, you know, uh, our thesis, you know, first of all, Vendia is short for Venn diagram, two circles coming together and sharing data with each other and not sharing mm -hmm. what they don't want to share. So that's our thesis is uh, data sharing between the companies today is, is, limited to either sending emails or spreadsheets or you know APIs back and forth, irrespective, you don't have no guarantee that the data is fresh 
or accurate or error-free. So you have to employ a lot of people or build in a lot of processes to reconcile. Our promise is you never have to reconcile anything. It's reconciliation-less data sharing. Mm -hmm. It's not just moving bits. That's the whole thesis of it. So when we do this, what we do is we save enormous amounts of money for the CFOs of the company. Um, our average customer saves about 88% reduction wow. in uh, spend, in reconciliation costs, in, in human costs. They can reassign that same human resource to to something else, um, and IT costs, maintenance, IT maintenance costs. And nobody has fun maintaining that IT. Uh, nobody does. So um, it's, it's, it's productivity there. So it's, we're very applicable in this new climate of cutting costs, doing more with less, um, efficiency, workforce efficiency, you know, things like that. Um, how has the company overall kind of worked with the changing, you know, money's cheap and free-flowing to money's tight? We were very um, uh, thankful to have, and then uh, lucky to have raised the money when we did. Uh, we did raise our Series B round uh, pretty much January of last year. So we did it before the market went downhill yeah. fast. Um, so we are well capitalized at this point, but we were always very fiscally conservative. Uh, yeah. We were never, a, there is a higher, higher, higher and fire, fire, fire kind of a uh, hypothesis, I think in the yeah. Valley companies, we never did that. Uh, we were always very slow and thoughtful um, to hire. And when we hired folks, we made sure that we absorbed them, we onboarded them well, and we made them successful and trained them to hire other people. And then to just, when you're a company of, you know, under 100, and if you're hiring five to 10 people a month, that's 10% increase. That's a lot of people to absorb. Mm -hmm. So we have prescriptively made sure that we don't do that. Uh, we hire very few people a month. We make sure that they we absorb them effectively. Mm, great. So, I mean, obviously, lots of change in in the tech ecosystem in the last few months, and still, I think overall pessimism of around what will happen in twenty twenty three, at least from what I've been reading about the World Economic Forum. But yeah, it's it's good to know Vendia has kind of been set up to. Uh, be sustained through whatever turmoil we see right in the market. So, um, and then I guess the next question is around roles and responsibilities between you and Tim. So, okay. could you share a little bit more about what you do as chief business officer, and then um, how you kind of divide and conquer with Tim? Yeah, uh, I always think of uh, uh, software or Vendia as a uh, as a production facility, like a factory situation. You know, you mm -hmm. start off with. Uh, with uh, from one side with your engineering and R&D and you know your development team there's a product team there to productize whatever that is into something usable market ready product and then there is marketing and then there is uh sales and, and customer success so it's like it's, if you look at it as a value channel and there is a bunch of horizontal of finance and um legal and accounting and whatnot so Tim, we're involved in everything, but really Tim uh, takes care of from the left side all the way from the R&D to, you know, like the midway through the product. I go from the midway through the product all the way to the uh, marketing and sales and mm. customer success side. 
Obviously, it's not, there's not like a red line demarcation in between. There is a lot of movement, but that's what we do. We're, um, he's way more technical than I am, uh, but I still write code. I don't, none of my code is being used in our software. Let's just make it make sure <laughs> that that's, uh, that's heard very loudly. I don't write code for us. I write code on the side and I, you know, just to have fun. But um, so I'm involved in all these things. And Tim is 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 great with customers. So he's always talking to customers. Mm -hmm. There's a back and forth there. But that's how we have divided it up between us. Great. And I know we just have a couple more questions. So um, one more question is around kind of advice you might have, right? So obviously this podcast focused on Asian CEOs and founders and executives and wanted to just here, number one, have you had any experiences where you felt as a Asian founder that was either an advantage or a disadvantage? And then number two, for Asian Americans out there who are looking to potentially either move up the ladder if they're in a corporate environment or um, potentially start their own thing, any advice specifically to that community that you might want to share? Yeah, so this is this, I guess this answers both of your, your questions. Is One is, I think the, the, the there are a lot of things that are stacked um, against the Asian American community. We are kind of looked up at, the, oh, wow, these are like smart people. Every single Asian American out there is a smart person to, uh, oh my God, no, there's a, there's a little bit of a uh, hate or there's a little bit of a looking down upon at the same time. It happens at the same time. It's very uh, uncanny. I don't, um, I, I'm, married to uh, to a white person, a uh, tall white guy with blue eyes and uh, brown hair. So which I see the difference it makes in when you look like him versus when you look like me. Um, the, 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 the whole behavior of people changes with you. So the reason I bring this up is there are a lot of things externally that's faced to uh, face toward us and the things that we go through. There's not a whole lot you can control. There is not much you can do. Sure, there's advocacy and you know talking about things and allyship, and those are all a ten-year plan. You know, uh, if we think this is going to change within a year, then you know we're kidding ourselves. But there are a lot of things that we do have control over, which is what happens within us, what happens inside of us. Uh, I was certainly raised this way, and a lot of my um, Asian American friends uh, also tell me this is true for them, which is we are all raised to do all the hard work, don't show off, don't make noise, keep your head down. You know, when you do enough hard work, somebody will recognize you. You don't have to be that guppy that jumps up and down and say, look at me, look at me. Mm. So there is a there is a small matter of discouraging attitude of showing and discouraging attitude of our accomplishments being shown in a positive light out there, unless someone else is initiating that. Guess what? In this 21st century, we all have to be advocates for ourselves. We can't wait mm -hmm. for someone to point that out to us. And I think as Asian Americans, it's very important for us to recognize this in each other and hold each other accountable to make sure that we talk about ourselves in that light. I'll give you an example. A good girlfriend of mine is was see, just recently made partner in a very large winery. She's Asian American. 
partner, she's in the same status as the two founders who founded that winery. And she has taken this winery from, you know, known by people who are members there to just this very exclusive waitlist for waitlist kind of deal. She, that she was responsible. The two founders, wonderful people, they have day jobs. They're doing something else. This is their pet project. And she is the person who runs this. And at a party, she introduced herself as, I work at a winery. You know, and I didn't say anything at that party. And after the fact, I apprehended her and said, hey, I'm not going to let you explain what you do as I work at a winery anymore. In fact, it was my fault that I didn't speak up and say, guess what she does at the winery? She doesn't just work at the winery. She's the partner. It was because of her that the winery is on the map right now. You can't even get on the wait list today because she's the partner. And she did it. And because of all that, they made her partner. They made her equal to them. Mm-hmm. I should have said that. And I didn't. And I apprehended, uh, I talked to her after the fact. Sure, that was helpful for future, but look how powerful it would have been if I had stepped in. Sure, she's not tooting her own horn. I am. I am tooting her horn for her. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the things that we can do. Uh, I think some other communities do this really well for each other. Uh, we don't do that as well for each other. We still have our own, but I'm Southeast Asian, but I'm Indian. I'm Southern Indian. I'm from this part of the state within India. Well, okay, this person's Taiwanese. No, no, they're from mainland China. Come on. It's <laughs> yeah. like, come, we're just... <laughs> This this we're Asian, right? It's yeah, huge. Yeah. So let's all and uh, we should do this for anybody, not just Asian. But since we know we were raised a certain way, we can at least okay. You don't want to market yourself? I'm going to market you. For sure, as but both Asian and then also you layer on top of that for a second generation immigrant. I think that kind of compounds some of it too, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, great advice. We need to be our own hype man, hype woman, and also do that for our fellow brothers and sisters. So great advice. And um, so for folks who want to follow you, Shruti, where is the best place for uh, people to follow what you're working on and um, what you're up to? A couple of places. One is I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. I'm under Shruti Rao with two diamonds. You will find me there with two diamonds. And also, if you want to follow anything we do as a company, vendia.com, that's V-E-N-D-I-A.com. So two circles coming together, short for Venn diagram. That's another place that you can follow us. Great. And maybe you should be posting your weekly recipe either on LinkedIn or any other social media channel so we can follow what's on the docket for the next 49 weeks. of. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> that's a great idea. Thank you for that. Great. Thanks so much, Shruti. Really had fun on the conversation. Thank you, Justin. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well. Stay healthy and follow your heart. See you soon.